Folks, again, uh, good morning. It's good to see you. Last week was uh, my first week back after a, a three-week break, and I, I said it was, it was good to see some folks I hadn't seen for four or five or six weeks. Um, I, I see some, some more faces here today of people I haven't seen most of the summer, so good to see you. And uh, again, to any visiting with us, uh, you're very welcome uh, to, to this gathering. Very simple, but but we believe very important, and that's a, a gathering of people who love Jesus Christ and they're learning to love him, uh, to, to learn more of him, uh, and to honor him. And something that we do then every time that we gather is we think for a few moments together on part of, of the Bible, uh, we believe it to be God's word. So we're going to do that again just now. If you had your Bible open in front of you, that would help you and me. Page 995, if you're using the Bibles there in the pew. This is the last sermon I'm going to preach in this series. Uh, And actually it's the last in a longer series of Matthew's Gospel. Today we finish Matthew's Gospel. I, I checked my records to see... We started in December of 2003. Um, We have had, I'm guessing, around about 66 sermons in that series, 66 chances to think together of different parts of Matthew's gospel. And as I was thinking about it, I don't think I'm overstating the case when I say it's changed my life. Tom Wright says that the longer you look at Jesus, the more you will want to serve him in this world. That is, of course, if it's the real Jesus you're looking at. 66 times over a period of seven years, we have gathered together. We've read a chunk of this part of the Bible and we've waited for God to speak to us. And I think... I'm not the only one who will say that in some way this has changed my life. Let's pray that that would be our experience today. Let's pray. Father God, we're not here for a filler in the middle of the service. We're not here to listen to a sermon because that's historically what Presbyterians choose to do. We're here because we absolutely need you to speak to us. Where we're confused, we need you to bring clarity. Where we're complacent, we need you to bring incisive thinking. Lord, we need to hear your word today. And we pray that you change our lives. Because we want to look more like Jesus and we want to honor him more. Amen. Today we come to one of the most sobering passages of all of Scripture. Um, I was at a conference recently where a speaker talked about a series that he thinks he should preach sometime, Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. Uh, And this passage would be right in there. 
In the opening three verses of our passage, so that's verse 31 and onwards of Matthew 25, we're given a snapshot of what's going to happen when Jesus returns to earth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The Bible speaks lots of times about the return of Jesus. Uh, You looked at some of this material a couple of weeks ago when David was preaching from Matthew 24. The descriptions generally don't tell us what exactly is going to happen, how this is going to come about. But if you read the Bible passages on the return of Jesus, they leave us in no doubt that this event will take place. And several things are very clear. First of all, that Jesus will return. That he's going to return this time not as a, as a helpless baby, but he's going to return in, in power. He's going to judge all people, those living and dead. And he's going to set up a new heaven and a new earth, a place where, where evil is banished and good finally reigns. So this morning our passage is dealing with this return of Jesus to the earth and it's a theme that's been recurring a lot in these recent passages in Matthew's gospel. So Jesus tells this story about the sheep and the goats to tell us something about the final judgment. But even that, he doesn't tell us it to to satisfy our curiosity. He tells us it so that we can live better now. He tells us about the future, about the end times, about the judgment, so that we can live well today. If I'm honest, there's a lot in this passage that doesn't surprise me. As I read it this week to prepare, and as I read it again this morning, it makes for hard reading, but it doesn't surprise me. Thanks to the faithful teaching of my family and my church family, I grew up quite aware that there there would be a judgment. I've always understood that Jesus the judge would come and that he would separate the people, uh, those who are blessed and come and share in his kingdom, those who, who are cursed and experience only God's judgment. So if I'm honest, a lot of that I've taken for granted most of my thinking life. There's one thing in this passage that always did surprise me and still does. Every time I read it, the the parable seems to jar on me. Especially if I'm not, if I I just stumble into it, I'm always thinking, goodness, I can hardly believe that that's there. Especially when I get to verse 35 and I learn of Jesus' basis for the final judgment. He turns to those that he's welcoming into his kingdom and he says, Here's why I'm welcoming you. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now stick with the logic of Jesus' story for a moment. This is the final judgment. This is the time when all will be gathered around the judgment throne of Jesus. So it's not just the small number of people who shared time and space with him during his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago. 
There, there are millions upon millions there, people like us, who have lived in a very different time and place and culture than Jesus. So we've never had a chance to feed Jesus or to clothe him or to visit him or to do any of these things that Jesus talks about. He hasn't been around for 2,000 years, at least not in that physical way, in that way that we could care for him. So you can hardly, you can hardly blame the, the, the crowd in the, in the parable who respond. Look at verse 37. They're confused. Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger? When did we see you sick? And then Jesus drops the bombshell. What he says here is the crux of the whole story. In verse 40, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Jesus says that any deed of kindness that we have done for any of his followers equates as doing it for him or to him. Throughout the history of the church, because we, we remember that every human being is made in the image of God, we have understood this parable to say that any good done to any person is done in the name of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, he comments in this passage and he says that God has designated the poor to act as his receivers. We can't demonstrate our love to God by, by giving anything to him directly. There's nothing he needs from us, not, no way in which he can be helped. But God wants us to give our lives instead to benefit the poor. The needy and the vulnerable, they have this task, he says, of receiving the love of God's people. So Jesus says it's this, it's this caring for the vulnerable and the poor that, that will be the basis for the final judgment. But wait a minute. We want to say, or at least I do, and, and I'm guessing that many of you do as well, I thought it was believing in Jesus that mattered. I thought when the final judgment happened, that's where the line would fall. On the right-hand side of the line, those who say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And on the left-hand side of the line, those who say, no, I don't. Surely that's what the, we're told famously in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him won't perish, but they'll have everlasting life. Surely it's all about believing in Jesus. We don't need to worry ourselves about helping the poor and the vulnerable. We read this passage here. We wonder what Jesus was on that day. And we think, well, it's all very interesting, but probably best just glossed over, move on. Friends, it gives me, I have some sense as I read this parable that Jesus is giving us here some idea of the lives that we live if we believe in him, truly. If Jesus is more than just our ticket to heaven, then, then taking Jesus seriously, believing in him and following him is going to lead us into just this way of life. 
This is the life that Jesus lived. If we take Jesus seriously, then we will want to to feed the hungry, to clothe the poor, and to reach out to the lonely and disillusioned and broken of our world. That is the life we'll find ourselves drawn into. Folks, I have no sense any longer that this parable is saying that belief in Jesus isn't important. In fact, I have an understanding now of this parable that it's showing us just how life-changing this belief in Jesus must be. It seems as we read this parable that Jesus is saying that our willingness to serve needy and vulnerable people is somehow a test of our faith. This is the way it proves itself genuine. And that's an idea that's repeated many times through Scripture. Both James and John in their later writings confirm this. So John, in his first letter, he talks there about how we might know a person who's a real Christian. A genuine Christian. And he focuses our attention on serving others. He says that anyone, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Christians claim that they're, they're possessed, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that God lives in them. And John asks the question, well, if, if God... God's there, would that not be evident in how we respond to to need around us? Dear children, let let us love not with words or tongue, but in actions and in truth. Real love for God, John says, will be expressed in our deeds as well as our words. James, in his short letter, makes a similar point. He says that any who claim to have faith but don't live it out with real service, that faith is dead. It's not genuine. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? That's our question today. What's saving faith? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is this? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied with action, is dead. Our response to people in need tests how genuine our faith really is. Folks, there are many people in the world today who claim to follow Jesus, and I am among them. There are lots who claim to say that Jesus is is God, that they believe in him. But notice one thing about Jesus' parable. Everyone in that parable is calling him Lord. The guys who go to the right, identified as the sheep, they say, Lord, Lord. And so do the guys on the left. They too call him Lord. So in this parable, we learn that Jesus uses our deeds and not our our words. He uses our deeds to separate true love from lip service. 
Forget about who's calling Jesus Lord. Forget about what people say they believe. The basis for judgment will be our lives. How we live out this belief that we claim we have. Why is that so? Maybe an illustration will help. There's a wealthy older woman. She is unmarried. She has no children of her own. And she only has one nephew. So he's her her closest relative. And in effect, he's her heir. When she dies, all her wealth uh, is likely to go to him. She's always found this young man to be extremely kind to her. But she's often wondered, how can she know if his kindness is genuine? Or or whether it's just a facade that he puts on for her because he understands that at the moment his name is written in her will. Is he genuine or is it all just a performance? Something geared up to get him what he wants to keep her sweet. Imagine then that the wealthy older woman leaves her her big home and and comes to the small apartment where she knows that this young man lives. She comes dressed not in her usual uh, fine clothes, but this time in the the clothes of a, a homeless down and out. And she sits on the pavement outside this guy's apartment early one morning waiting for him to come out on his way to work. When he comes out of the house and he sees her on the pavement, he swears at her. He threatens her to to get her to, to move on. And when she doesn't do that, he physically lifts her to his feet and chases him, chases her down the street out of his neighborhood. Now the wealthy older woman knows what her nephew's really like. As she's confronted him with a, a person in need, with a person who needed to receive God's grace and kindness, she's seen where his heart really lies. Do you see now why Jesus can say, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Jesus, somewhat like that wealthy old spinster in her story, he can say in effect, I am the homeless person outside of your front gate. I am the Romanian Belfast Telegraph salesperson at the knock traffic lights. I'm the person who sits in a a shop way overnight in Belfast because I have nowhere else to go. And how you treat me, how you treat that person tells me what you're really like. Folks, let me close. I used to find this parable absolutely terrifying. Because I didn't see that I was feeding the hungry or clothing the naked. And my understanding of of God's salvation didn't, didn't embrace the kinds of things that are talked about here. So I read this parable wondering how I would experience the final judgment of Jesus Christ. Things have been changing a little bit for me recently. 
because I've realized that maybe not to the extent that I would want, but in some small ways I have been involved in feeding and clothing people and bringing healing into their lives using some of the resources God has given me to work through the church and other agencies. I've realized too that we have begun to take small steps here as a church. The embrace collection that we do bring together clothing and toiletries for homeless people in Belfast. Is that not what Jesus talks about here? Storehouse. Many of you are are buying extra groceries on a weekly or a monthly basis, leaving them in a trolley here in the church that people in Belfast who, who can't see their way to their next meal are being helped. And as I look to the future and see what we're planning to do here as a church, I see that, that we are moving in this direction. So when I think of the plans that we have to, to go out and visit some of the most isolated and bereft people in our parish, some, some people we've been talking just this last week or two about beginning to call with people in a, in a high-level, secure nursing home. People whose minds are not what they once were, but people who still have the dignity of being made in God's image and of needing to know love and, and friendship. Providing maybe, as we're hoping to do, something for disillusioned teenagers in our parish might be a an off-site sports outreach. We don't know yet. Folks, I no longer think, I no longer feel the way I do about this parable, this sense of inevitability that I'll go to my grave never having lived this life that Jesus talks about. I have some hope growing in me that we could do this, that we could live this way. That everything that we say that we believe about Jesus will be lived out in such a tangible way that other people will see it and know it, but so will we. We too will know that our, our faith in Jesus is real when we see how he's prompted us and moved us to live differently than before. Folks, quite often when I read a parable like this, um, I don't mind saying sometimes they just stand as a, as a rebuke and a judgment, something that we need to take away and, and maybe dwell on. I don't want you to leave thinking that this morning. I want you to leave thinking something different. I want you to leave recognizing that we have started this journey. We've started to do these things, to feed people, to clothe people, to, Goodness, I'm not claiming much here. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we've made those beginnings. And I want to be grateful to God that he's brought us this far. And I want to encourage you not now to lose heart or to lose interest, but to continue. Let's learn more about how God is calling us to serve broken people. And, and then let's, let's do it. Let's, let's live this out. Folks, I want you to leave here encouraged this morning that we can read a passage like this, one of the hardest in all of Scripture, 
and know that by God's grace and his mercy, as he has saved us, as he's washed us clean, as he's made us new, he can make us into just the kind of people that he describes here, the sheep in this passage, people who do care about other people and love them sacrificially. All of this can happen. All of this is possible. Let's pray. Father God, once again, your word has searched us. It's revealed our our shallowness, our inconsistency. Lord, there's part of us that would just love a world where simply verbally saying, yes, Jesus, I love you, I follow you, I've signed up, where that would be enough. That would, we'd love that in part because, because mostly that's where we're at. Our commitment often falters only at our words. But Lord, in our heart of hearts, we want to thank you and say, thank you that you call us to greater things than that. Thank you that your salvation isn't one that leaves us as selfish and as unconcerned for others as we always were. Thank you that by your grace, you want to make us something new, something beautiful, something that shines for you in this world. Lord, thank you for the small encouragement that we see because we have started to take some of these steps. Lord, we pray now that you would flood this place by your spirit. That everything that Jesus talks about here would be recognizable in this community. That we would give ourselves, give ourselves entirely to sharing Jesus and his love with those who need it. Lord, send us your spirit, we pray, because we can't do any of this without you. Amen.